and welcome to 90% Hits, the first of what we hope to be many podcasts like this, where we will be talking about the 90s Australian charts and albums from the 90s. With me today is Tim Coyle. Hola. And Casey Atkins. Hello. And from the Gold Coast, Tim Byron. Ahoy, hoy. How's everyone doing? Doing well. Pretty good. Wonders of modern technology. So we're starting this podcast and we are going to go through number one singles chronologically from 1990 in Australia. Uh, This is something that Tim Byron has been writing about in The Vine and we're all music fans, so we all grew up in this era. So I guess I wanted to start off with, on this very, very first podcast, talk about how old we were in 1990 and what you were listening to, generally. Uh, Tim Byron, maybe you down the line would want to start. Yeah, should sure. We go, should we go uh, chronologically, youngest to oldest, and I think that would start that would start with you, Tim, wouldn't it? I yep. also chose Tim because I thought he, he's the one that I want least to think about the answer before he answered. <laughs> <laughs> so where were you well, yeah, in 1990, I, Tim? I turned eight in 1990, and in 1990 I was living in Western Sydney uh, with... My parents had divorced by that point, and what was I listening to at that point? I discovered music by that point, and looking through the charts in 1990 like I just went through today, I'm surprised by how many of the songs I knew. I thought I knew less than I did, but... Were you aware of the charts? Were you aware of what was number one, or that there was a number one? I don't think I... I think I became aware of that around 1991 or so. I think in 1990, I, was, I wasn't really aware. I was just hearing things on the radio. Okay. Tim Coyle? Mm. Well, in 1990, I turned nine years old um, and was at St. Nicholas Primary School in Tamworth. Um, and probably a bit like Tim, um, yeah, was kind of aware of, of music. And was very much into mostly chart stuff, but uh, whereas maybe what was number one was a little bit of a peripheral thing for Tim. It was a pretty big thing on the playground when I was growing up. Songs were kind of like your football team. Um, And, yeah, wherever something was in the charts, you were kind of really pressing hard for it to get a bit further up. And if the song you liked was number one, that was somehow... Uh, you could bask in the reflected glory of that. So, Were you watching video hits? Yeah, shows de- like definitely. That? I, I mean, I don't remember the name of Casey might be able to help me out here, given we grew up in the same town. But, um, yeah, I don't remember the name of the video hit show that was screened on prime television at the time. <sighs> that was an interesting noise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... It will come to me. I do. It's, it's not entirely. It was, no, I've got it. It was called Video Smash Hits. Video Smash Hits. Well, maybe this is a good time to go. Casey, where, where were you and what were you doing at the time? Uh, I was in Tamworth also, but um, hadn't met Tim by that stage. So I, I turned 10 in 1990, St. Edward's Primary School. I was really aware of music. I can't think that I was aware of where things were on the charts so much by then. I remember watching Video Smash Hits. I remember watching Rage. I definitely had favourite songs. Um, I can't remember 
about where things were on the charts, though. I just remember that uh, there were certain songs that always happened to be on video smash hits, or even Rage. I remember Rage, watching Rage then as well. But Saturday Morning Rage, which was the chart Rage, but I didn't... Rage me. would finish at number one by 9am. Yeah. So I couldn't really yeah, get up that early and catch the end of it. You couldn't watch the number 40 song. You could probably watch... The I did. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, 92, 93, I would get up that early. I think it drove my parents insane. Well, I used to tape it. So I was... Right. In, I was... Uh-huh. In school, I was at Summer Hill Primary School, and I definitely was aware of the charts and was, yeah, massively fascinated by them. I have lots of VHS tapes of video hits and video smash hits, and video smash hits was on Channel 7, I think, for a little while. And there was, no, and there was all sorts of different sort of movie video shows that I taped. I've got the entire 1986 Grammy Awards on VHS, <laughs> Well, it's, it's kind of the golden age of the video clip at that time as well in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah that's true. I went in, um, in 1991, we went to America on the way to Ireland where my mum was from and we had relatives in Los Angeles and I was so fascinated by seeing MTV for the first time and it's like real format rather than the two-hour show you had on Channel 9 to actually just see the, you know, a TV show that was just, a TV station that was just devoted to music videos. It was amazing. I've got a question for everybody before we go on to specific things. Can you remember the first song that you remember being your favourite song? Well, yes, yes I, I definitely can. Uh, mine was, and it was to do with the charts. I remember being very, very happy when waking up one morning to watch Rage at about, half past eight and watching the charts and seeing that Better Be Home Soon got to number one in 1988. I still have that VHS of that episode of Rage where I was very happy that that got there. And I still remember the film clip. They were so funny in it. They were sort of, you know, there's that one bit where Paul Hester holds the sign up upside down and from the, from the footlights of the stage. And that was definitely the first song I fell in love with. Okay. That's really, I'm, I regret bringing that up now because that's <laughs> way cooler than mine. <laughs> Tim Byron, what's yours? The first song I remember liking, that being a song that it was, you know, a favourite, I think was um, I've Got My Mind Set On You by George Harrison. Nice. Which is also kind of cool. Like, uh, it's, it makes sense in terms of that I think my be- my parents had raised me on a diet of the Beatles by that point. So, you know, George Harrison wasn't exactly out of my comfort zone. Mm. Were you aware that he was in the Beatles? Yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't when that song came out. Yeah, I remember loving that song. I don't know if I... Oh, maybe I did know. I'm not... I can't remember whether I knew it was in the Beatles or not. Tim Poor? Um, I remember as a kid really loving uh, not a specific song so much, but apparently I would play Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA from start to finish quite a lot. Um, but again, can't, can't pick a specific song that I loved off that uh, at the time. Um, but uh, I'd probably say Elton John's Crocodile Rock as a kid. Nice one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Casey, what was yours? Favourite song that I remember always wanting, and I wasn't 10 at this stage, pre-1990, I remember being maybe five or six and always wanting this to come on when I got up and watched Rage or Video Smash Hits, was Invisible Touch by Phil Collins. I... Just, I adored it. I have no idea 
Was it Phil Collins or Genesis? It was Genesis. Was it Genesis? Yeah, it was actually it was Genesis. Genesis. Well, bloody hell, there you go. I loved it so much, didn't even know. <laughs> so there you go. Into the format. <laughs> Into the format. Okay. So here is the number one song from January 6, 1990. Is there anyone here who would say that that's not a song that you know how it goes off by heart? Yeah, not no. at all. It's a song that is so ubiquitous to this day. However, I will freely admit that it was probably only within the last two years that I figured out or maybe read that she actually was singing Tin Roof Rusted in that <laughs> What did you think she said? I had no idea. You know what? I've never thought of that. No, did you not know that that's no, what I said? I'm pretty terrible with that. Is, oh, well, it, I, I like that it's a complete non sequitur anyway, so... <laughs> tin I, Roof Rusted. Yeah, that's that. what she's singing. Tin Roof. I had no idea until maybe I looked it up. So when did we all first hear, that, hear this song? Tim Coyle? Uh... It was actually number one towards the end of 1989, wasn't it? Kind of Christmas holidays-y period. Uh, so I think, yeah. yeah, it would have been Video Smash Hits or Rage watching that of a morning in December uh, around the Christmas holidays in that time. And I, I found it quite weird at the time. And I think my memory, if my memory serves me correctly, that was a pretty common opinion that, People who were nine or ten at that stage found it a little bit of a weird proposition. What the the idea of a love shack? That possibly played into the confusion, but uh, just the the, the style. <laughs> just, just imagining. Sorry to interrupt. I'm just imagining right now if you were to walk across a shop that says the love shack. <laughs> What that would be, the, the, the spoils that, that lie age. within. <laughs> so, do you, would you say that you like the song? And- no, I, I wasn't. I, I wouldn't say I was a huge fan of it because I just didn't understand where it was coming from. If you're if you're a nine or ten year old, you don't have a grasp of the concept of camp, which this song is a very very classic example of, and. Yeah, it, it went over my head. What about now? Have you has your have you warmed to the song, or do you? Still- I, I have I have a bit actually. It's uh, just being able to put it into context, and also growing up and finding out who the B fifty twos were, and uh, being able to put it into the broader context of what they were about is is quite helpful in that regard. But being able to 
grasp the concept of of camp and that style uh, was quite helpful, but it wasn't something I understood at the time. Tim, tell us about camp. What's camp? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. How are you the question, Dr. Byron. <laughs> Gladly, Dr. Byron. Well, what about you, Tim Byron? Like, when did you hear the song, and did you like it, and how do you feel about it now? Um, Love Shack. I, I don't remember hearing for the first time. It just seems to me to be one of those songs that always existed. Um. So, so I think it must have been like it must have been around for a while when I think maybe I first heard it, or maybe it just kind of percolated. At the time, I think I remember thinking it was fun. That was that's sort of my memory of it because it had that really sort of like listening to it. It's got such an insistent beat. It's such a dance song. Mm. Like it, it's because um, it's got the the camp overtones and it's got the kind of the, the silliness around it. But basically, it, it's a big dance song. It's something that you would play, mm. you know, at a party where you'd also play the Nutbush City Limits and the Macarena. Probably, like <laughs> I'm sure, like a lot of those parties still play things like. The Love Shack? It reminds me, just on, on that note, it rem- I always think of um, school discos. That That's what comes really? to my head. And probably the first school disco I ever went to, which probably would be about that time. If that was 1990, that makes me 10, I guess. We were having them about then. Fairly heavily chaperoned, I guess. But I remember... I remember Love Shack being played numerous times at one particular school disco and a particular teacher who we all thought was a little bit weird. Um, Think of a name one day too. Uh, (laughs) Requesting and shouting for it to be played uh, a number of times. I love it now. I I, I don't know whether or not I liked it so much back then, but these days I I have a real appreciation for that song. Is that a song that you would play... In your covers band? Uh, it would be if we had a chick singer. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't. And But we've talked about, as you always do when you're in a cover band, oh, if we could, if we got a girl, we could do blah, 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 blah song, and that's always top of the list. Yeah. So, so who would do the Fred Schneider voice? Because <laughs> it's quite a distinctive voice. I could give it a crack. <laughs> that guy always got me. I loved that song growing up. Mm. But there was something, because I was so young, there was, he was... I remember having a very clear memory that that guy looked too old to be on video hits. <laughs> that makes any, like, it just like he didn't look cool, he didn't look handsome, he was in this weird band, and he just, he's got that Roger Daltrey sort of thing where he always looked old. And he's probably aged well now, while the rest of the B-52s probably don't. But I just loved that song, and I loved the follow-up, which was Ron. Yeah, Ron Ron today actually on the radio. Yeah, these are fantastic pop songs, and they, I think, are from the last, pretty much the last two songs that these guys ever did. But the other thing that was happening around that time was uh, those members of that band appeared on Shiny Happy People. Well, a year later, yeah, Kate Pearson's all over, out of time, and she Mm. also is on Iggy Pop's Candy. Oh, yep. now, that's a song I remember really, really was well. I remember the clips of that really well. Yeah, that, that was that was after Love Shack, and yeah, it's it, I can't remember when it was ninety three or no, that's earlier than that. That would be ninety or ninety one or so. I reckon. Okay. Mm. I'm pretty sure I have a B fifty two's greatest hits where the last two tracks are like Love Shack and Rome. So, mm. and that's the thing. It's a weird thing that they had a multi album career. 
Yeah. Before they even got to that point. Oh, the, the, I mean, the story is they were a party band in Athens through the late 70s and early 80s. But, yeah, they were they were quite prominent in a local sense before Rock Lobster, oddly enough, just took off in the US. That's a song I don't get. <laughs> really? No, I like I the riff. It's a, that song. it's a great riff. I guess one of the things about uh, the B-52s, um, that, just going with how old that guy looked... <laughs> um, that Danny was talking about before. He was. Yeah. But the, the thing that about the... They, they, Rock Lobster was 79 or so. Right. I, I saw an anecdote where John Lennon said that he liked the B-52s. Bloody hell. Well, that is the thing. I, like, I have that two-disc B-52s best of that Rhino put out, and they had this long career, and I've tracked down a couple of the albums since, and I own a couple of their other albums, and they're bubblegum fun, and they're kind of crazy. And Their audience initially very much saw them as an edgy art. Definitely they had a bubblegum and party mm. feel to them, but their audience was mo- were mostly students who tended to like edgier, artier stuff. That was kind of what they were pitched to, and you can kind of see that with Rock Lobster, with the the... The very, the, the rhythm and that that riff. It's just it's very kind of detective film from the sixties or seventies mm. kind of mm. thing going on there. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where I didn't realise that it was playing on. Like, I guess the the parallel example is I didn't realise Greece was a period film when I first saw it, and to the same degree, I didn't realise that the B fifty twos were harking back to another like that fifties, almost the Jetsons beehives yeah. sort of vibe that go, go, girls. that I just thought was completely normal because I didn't know anything at that time. I just thought there's probably a whole section of the world that dressed like that and that was probably <laughs> America. But so, you also thought that Hard Days Night was a documentary. So. Yes. <laughs> so I wasn't the cleverest. Parts of it were documentary. <laughs> Some of the girls running after them were real. One of the things about Love Shack that I find interesting, just going back to the, just before we move on, I'm um, going back to the um, how old they were was that looking at the charts at that time, there's a lot of stuff from the 70s in the charts. Like, if I look at the um, the songs that were number two underneath Love Shack, uh, one of the songs that was number two was Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Yeah. Which, you know, Billy Joel's been around since the 70s. Another number two was I Feel the Earth Move by Martika, which was a cover of a 70s song by Carol King. Another one was I Want That Man by Debbie Harry. And she'd been around in Blondies in the 70s. And, in fact, she was around in the late 60s as a, as a folky singer-songwriter. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't any mathematical understanding that they were old. Like, at least Billy Joel looked great in that film clip. He had his sunglasses on, those things burning behind him. Like, Fred and the B-52s just looked like he belonged in my local real estate agent. He looked like one of my teachers. Like, there was something about that that was really strange. It was, it was, yeah. I, it was part of the appeal that they they had that Fred Schneider was decidedly square and that Kate Pearson and uh, what's the Wilson girl's name? I can't the other remember. one. What's her name, Wilson. Um, were also, I mean, they, they weren't classically video video clip hot women in rock kind of thing. But they looked like yeah, rock true. stars. Cindy they Wilson, did, they yeah. did. Yes, yeah, Cindy Wilson. Thank you, Danny. Okay, well, moving on. Our next track uh, got to number one on the 17th of February 1990 and stayed there for one week. Love Shack was actually there for six weeks. 
Number I believe one. it, as well as the two weeks in 1989. It's yeah. Eight weeks altogether. Which is amazing. So on 17th of February 1990, for one week, was Aerosmith with Janie's Got a Gun. say fairly confidently my first exposure to Aerosmith if if I hadn't already heard Walk This Way by that point. I'm trying to think of whether I'd already heard Walk This Way. I, I certainly remember that being on the charts and I also remember my mother being horrified by the song. <laughs> it's, you know how you have those kind of memories of things? It's, it's interesting it comes up because uh, on the weekend, David and Margaret from at the movies did, of course, did Rage, which uh, I was watching at a friend's house, and one of the first clips they played was Janie's Got a Gun because... Uh, do we know who did the film clip? No, I don't, actually. Uh, David Fincher really? did the film really? clip. And yeah. having watched it again the other night, it's it's pretty spectacular. Uh, it's, it's a complete narrative. It's very noirish, and Stephen Tyler's mouth is... Epic. <laughs> was David Fincher anyone at that point? No, he wasn't. No. I think this is one of the very first things he did, but it's an incredible clip. I remember it. I was actually going to ask just just um, just before whether it was from a movie because I remember the clip being very cinematographic. Is that a word? Just made it up. Cinematic. 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 Thank you. Edit that out. Um. <laughs> Make me look smarter. Uh, yeah, and... Um, because, you know, I've got things in my head, like I can remember the, there's the clip to, like, Don't Want to Miss a Thing, which has got all of the bits and pieces from Armageddon into it. I was wondering if it was the same kind of thing. But it's a very cinematic clip. So did you like it at the time, and how do you feel about it now? <sighs> I can't remember. I think I liked it enough for a 10-year-old. I would, I don't mind Aerosmith now. I'd go for other songs before I ever listened to that, though. Are you surprised it got to number one? In the current landscape, I'm surprised that a song like that would get to number one. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. What about you, Tim Byron? Did you like it at the time, and how do you feel about it now? Again, it was a song I have reasonably vague memories of. I remember thinking that the song was important, that it was a very serious song, like it was serious oh, yeah, business. Yeah. I Well, if, it, if you listen to the lyrics, it actually is dealing with some serious content. Yeah, uh, it is. Child abuse is effectively the subject of the, of the song. Okay, well, this is the bit where I go, I don't think I've ever thought about what the song is ever about. <laughs> it just felt like a rock song, and Aerosmith kind of scared me at the time. <laughs> I liked it, uh, and I like quite a lot of these Aerosmith 90s singles. Again, like the B-52s, for me, 
I love everything that Aerosmith put out, at least as singles, post-1990. Before then, I was too young. I love Janie's Got a Gun. I've got, I love Crazy. I love Living on the Edge and mm. all those sort of pop singles that were around at the time. Don't really like, don't want to miss a thing. I kind of appreciate what it's trying to do, but no. But yeah, I, there's enough Diane Warren songs around. Fuck Diane Warren. Uh, well, Tim Coyle. <laughs> I, I might approach this by way of a question. Is Well, this was pretty much the first Aerosmith song I'd heard, like Casey and Tim Byron, but they were obviously what we know now. They were already huge. See, there's another story. band that's been, yeah. that had been around for a million years, mm. uh, you know, quote-unquote, um, maybe not quite as long as the B-52s, but they've been around for a bloody long time. Mm. Uh, I reckon they're longer than the B-52s because their first albums were like 75, 76. Was it rock? that? Wow, okay. Yeah. Because the, the story with Aerosmith was that um, they had the big rock career and they were um, basically sort of, you know, tunnelling down into oblivion in the mid-80s when they got the phone call from Rick Rubin, I think, um, asking if they wanted to do the thing with run DMC. At that point, they were a nothing band commercially and were about to break up. Wow. So they'd been going since the 70s and had been on a slow decline until then. And then after that, they their career came back and they became the Aerosmith that we know and tolerate. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. The, the other thing about a band like Aerosmith and this era of time is that there was still so much payola going on, especially in the States. I'm not sure how that translated into Australia, mm-hmm. but Aerosmith are just the perfect band for some guy in a record company with a bag of cocaine to take some guy from a radio station out and go play Aerosmith. It was just, I, I remember from the time, it's just, it's a constant barrage of hair rock singles, which at the time I didn't necessarily pay much mind to or, or like. These guys were a bit weird with their long hair and leather pants and the... I really liked Poison. <laughs> That's probably about this time. Yeah, no, poison, poison trick, Def Leppard. Yeah. It was just relentless at the time. And looking back at it now, it's it's a golden age of that particular kind of songwriting. It's just being able to crank out a number one like that, which these guys were very good at, and well, their producers were very good at. This is exactly the kind of stuff that in 1991 was sort of uncool to like all of a sudden, wasn't it, when Nirvana came along and this is... Well, it, depend- yeah, it, de- it depends where you lived. Stuff like stuff sure. like that was still very popular where mm. I was growing Hair rock was very popular. But in the charts, like that stuff fell out of the charts pretty quickly by the mid-90s. It was kind of its last gasp, but, but yeah. they were, it was going... Well, to, <laughs> to use a quote of an awful song that was going out in a blaze of glory, so to speak. Is that, <laughs> is that one coming up? <laughs> I, I, think I, I don't is. think it made it. Did it make number one? I, I think it, there's definitely Bon Jovi coming up. Well, that may not be good. that one, but there'll be Bon Jovi later on. <laughs> well, Always, it's, I think. it's the early 90s. Bon Jovi is most certainly coming up. Really big yeah. The thing I think listening to Janie's Got a Gun is that the song sounds like it's all done on MIDI. It all sounds like it's compu- like it's done on computers. Well, the, the bass sound Keyboards. is really... Uh, when I was listening to it the other night, I was just... And we'll talk about this again a little later with respect to another thing that we're going to talk about. 
But yeah, as soon as I heard that bass sound, it was a visceral reaction to it. it was like, Ugh. It, it doesn't it's, sound like a rock band playing. No, it doesn't. It's, also, it's not really a hard rock song, is it? It's no. definitely not nothing but a good time. But you listen to Thanks for the poison. You listen to a lot of the you listen to a lot of that hair metal and they're not actually It's not very hard, is it? No, they're not rock songs, no. really. There are a lot of power ballads and meticulously put together, very well produced, sheeny, shiny uh, songs. But they're not uh, they're not visceral rock songs. Yeah. Casey, yeah. as our resident guitar player, Hello. I guess probably the most rock out of all of us, what do you, what do you think of it? <laughs> God damn it. I know. We're not a very rock group, are we? <laughs> like, well, where do you rate Aerosmith as a rock band and guitarists and as a as a rock band? Oh, they're great guitarists. And um, the, the, the two guitarists have got a, um, quite, a, quite a unique sound. And, but it's something that... I think with Aerosmith, there is kind of like a lot of bands that had big success like that. There is probably quite a lot of difference between the singles that a lot of people hear and what the band's really about and what the guts of a lot of their records kind of sound like. I I mean, I haven't listened to the whole record that Jamie's Jamie's Got A Guns on, but I don't reckon that... The whole record sounds like that. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think. Yeah, this kind of yeah. goes back to the question I didn't finish. Well, it's not really a question, but comparing, in retrospect, Janie's Got a Gun to Toys in the Attic, so, yeah. which is a great rock song, uh, and just it could almost be by two different bands. Yeah. 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 One of the things that jumped into my head as we were talking about this, and it's probably something that will come up a little bit later down the line, but um, remember More Than Words by Extreme? Mm. (laughs) So there were two singles from that record, and I think More Than Words probably got to number one or very close. Yeah. Um, But there were two singles from that record. There was More Than Words and there was Wholehearted, and they were the two, like, acoustic songs with all the harmonies and stuff. And you buy the record, and it's this uh, speed hair metal stuff for the rest of it. It's the record is called Pornography. Pornography, indeed it is. <laughs> <laughs> and every, I every, every 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 fourteen year old boy's favorite two things. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of things that teenage boys are into, well, actually, the complete opposite. This person scared me. This is actually the highest selling single of nineteen ninety for eight weeks at number one. Sinead O'Connor, nothing compares to you. It's been seven hours and fifteen days Since you took your love away I go Your love Since you've been gone I can do whatever I want I can see whomever I choose I can eat my dinner In a fancy restaurant 
Okay, well, Sinead O'Connor, nothing compares to you. What do we think of the song, Tim Coyle? Uh, I did not like it when it first came out. It's 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 a nine-year-old boy going to like a pretty heartfelt ballad which features Sinead O'Connor weeping in a video clip. Um, I, I've actually come to see it's a, it's a great song. What about you, Casey? Do you remember the film clip as well? Oh, God, do I remember the film clip? How could you forget that film clip? Um, I, to be I, I remember how much it was about and I remember seeing it so many times on Rage and I can't remember for the life of me whether or not I liked it. These days I'll tolerate it. It's still not a favourite song. Tim Byron, did you like the song? For me... Uh, Nothing Compares to You is really my mum's music because my mum is Irish um, and two years before she'd broken up with my dad. And so like Sinead O'Connor was something that she very much related to. So I remember hearing that a lot and thinking it was my mum's music. So it reminds me of her. And so it probably did then and it kind of does now. Was your mum bald? She had short hair at that point. I don't think she quite went bald. I have to say, I think Sinead O'Connor in that film clip might have been the first bald woman I've ever seen. I would agree. I, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I think that that was a thing at the time for a 10-year-old. Yeah, Yeah, and it was – and I think that was the, the the great shock of that film clip, right? It was just oh, – it was pretty much stark. her face mm. until she until she goes for a little walk in the graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, a, just a stroll. Just because, you know, to cheer herself up, she went for a walk in, in a black and white graveyard. But, yeah, it was definitely, I remember just really being in awe of the power of the song, but I had no, never come close to having that much emotion full stop, let alone sad emotion in me, mm. to really understand the song. I was just fascinated. I was fascinated by the film clip, uh, fascinated by her bold head. It really was something that was difficult for me to get over, and it reminded me of, Things like Martika and all these sort of sort of songs around the same time. That these which which ballads. is strange in a way because Sinead O'Connor was actually quite alternative when you look at the rest of what she was doing at the time. And then Prince calls her up and says, "Hey, perform my song," and it's the highest selling single of 1990 in Australia. Do we like Sinead O'Connor? Has anyone got any of her other music? I have no opinion. I, I don't really know out. Side of this, and oh, maybe a, a couple of other singles. Emperor's um, New Clothes is a rather reasonable song. That's right, yeah. Which I think it's a song I like better than Nothing Compares to You in a way. It's sort of more upbeat and kind of less sort of terrifying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, do we agree that we're all like a little bit scared by it at the age of, you know, between eight and ten? I don't think any of us would have even been ten at that point. Yeah, I was yeah. Little, yeah. I was definitely scared by it. it was Confronting strange. it, please. Uh, you don't have to say why. Has anyone ever listened to this song and really got it? Has this ever been an important breakup song for you? Nah, no, no, no. It's not really. It's just really straight, isn't it? No, I think I think by the time I actually started, um, like, you know, having relationships that broke up. Exactly. Um, I had a bit more of a, a musical consciousness by that point. Like, I, I was listening to things that, like I was going to music rather than having it come to me. Like we're talking about music that 
that came to us. Yeah, definitely. At the moment, rather than music that we went to. And by the time, yeah, I was actually, I was going to say breaking up with people, but I never did that. By the time <laughs> I was being broken up with, <laughs> I had music that I could go to. Have we heard the Prince? Well, not the Prince version, is it? It's the family? Or was it yeah. Prince? I think on Prince's greatest hits, he's got a version of this, which is a live one, which I think he sings about half of, and the woman who's in the new power generation sings the other half. I've seen him do this song live, so he's definitely done it, and it's pretty amazing. And I do, when I think about it, the lyrical simplicity of it, how direct it is, it's a beautiful song. Mm, yeah. It's just never been one that I've really... You know, taken to heart. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with this. Uh, with, uh, I'm with Danny on this. Looking back on this with with my eyes and ears right now, I can appreciate that it's actually a terrific song. It's brilliantly written. It's it's Prince at his at his best. For me, though, I think like kind of the same thing. I can I can appreciate it for what it is now, but I'll always think of it as that song. It was number one for a long time when it's I was never going to be something yeah, that you're right. going to connect with. Yeah. I love the opening line. You know, it's been seven hours. And it, like, it's just something really weird and beautiful about it's that. It's very well. precise. Yeah, which, exactly. Uh, I guess if you're in this obsessive stage of, of mm. a breakup or grief, that's, that's how, how your mind is working. But that's great songwriting and that's pretty, you know, yeah. and he... Well, how do we feel yeah. about Prince? Oh, Prince is a genius. <laughs> we, we will get the cover prints. We will get the at cover some prints. point. Right. Okay. Well, maybe we should leave it at that. I guess uh, just before we leave off. So, none of us are Sinead O'Connor fans. No one's got a Sinead O'Connor album. Did anyone? But no. like, this album was really big. What was My mum had this album, so I heard it quite a lot. It was. Uh, I do not want what I haven't got. Yeah. No. I ended up buying her. 2000 album, Faith and Courage. Oh, I heard. Uh, like, that album had a lot of buzz about it. Yeah, I, it was on Triple J. There was yeah, a couple I, of songs yeah, on it. I, I was re- working in record shops at the time or, or just after that, so I remember it being a, a thing. Or, um, it, was, it was a bit of a resurgence there, wasn't there? Yeah. I, I remember hearing songs of hers, which I couldn't for the life of me name now, but I remember hearing songs of hers, which I really liked. Uh, and also the persona became a bit larger than life for a time there, ripping up pictures What's of the Pope. What's she doing the Pope, yeah. Something about the second Pope. most famous thing. Well, an Irish yeah. woman ripping up pictures of the Pope. Yeah. a pretty significant mm. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I guess that brings us to the end of this Sinead O'Connor fan club meeting. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's not really something... I mean, we all, I think, agree it's a great song. Uh, another song that we may or may not agree is a great song. 21st of April, 1990, number one for two weeks. Paula Abdul and Opposites Attract. Not 
Was your love for it helped by the film? Uh, yeah, that helped. I tell ya, I had a bit of bit of bit of a boy girl thing going on for Paul Abdul in that clip. Really? Yeah. You actually knew what a boy girl thing was at that age. Apparently, maybe that's what did it. That's, maybe that's <laughs> what started Paul it. Abdul <laughs> took you over the edge. Yeah. <laughs> and close. I remember when I found out that it was MC Hammer doing with the there was the voice of the animated doll. It's not actually. What is that? An no. Urban legend. Yeah, that's an urban legend. Damn it! Who is the Who is it? The voice is um. There's actually two different guys doing the voice, and they used to be in a band called Maserati, who were like a Prince proteges, and they were basically two Prince proteges. So, it, but 1990, all about Prince. Whoa! So I just I've believed that the whole time, have I? And there you go. Yeah, I just wikied it today. I figured we'd talk about it. <laughs> did, you, did you think that it was MC Hammer the whole time as well? No, I wondered whether it was someone famous, but yeah, no. I didn't know who it was. I just assumed it was a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember the name of the cat? MC Scat Cat. MC Scat Cat. Are you kidding? Yeah. (gasps) Just slipping it in under the radar there. It was just a show I read in Smash Hits. There was a story about it. Uh, Well, Tim Byron, what did you think of the song? Uh, I really liked Paula Abdul at that time. It was a, you know, it was a catchy kind of fun song and it wasn't like, Nothing compares to you, which sort of was parents' music. This was like music for kids, like us. You really so, liked Paula Abdul at the time. Yeah. What are, what were the uh, other hits at Bla- the time? Black Cat Rush. Was Rush. Was was Black Cat Paula Abdul? No, that was Janet Jackson. No. But, that but that's a good point because Paula Abdul, like opposites attract, is really, really obviously trying to be Janet Jackson. Hmm. Would this fall on the new Jack swing? Oh yeah. I think yeah. I think we're we're smack bang in the middle of. New Jack Swing yeah. in 1990. Well, what about you, Tim Coyle? I, I liked it. I remember distinctly it was one of those songs that people would sing on the school bus uh, going to and from school. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I remember my, my brother and I both both really liked it and both looked forward to the clip coming on and, yeah, it was just one of those just joyous songs for mm. Kind of made for ten-year-old kids watching pop music on TV, you know. Did your brother also have a boy girl thing about Paula Abdul? <laughs> Probably. Or did he have a thing for the cat? <laughs> the cat He's going to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> the cat, I think, from was wearing. I mean, I can understand why you you think it's MC Hammer because he was kind of dressed like MC Hammer, wasn't he? I just well, somebody somebody must have told me that about the around the time, or actually, I probably didn't but, even know MC Hammer then. Well, opposites attract is <clears throat> number one before you can't touch this. Yeah. I think so, somebody wow. must have told me that around the time, and I just believed it then and have thought it ever since. And like, <laughs> there's, there's heaps of stuff like that, right? Maybe that's how MC Hammer managed to get a record deal. He'd lie. <laughs> I, was the, was I, was, yeah. I was the I was the cat. He stole my pants. Here, have a a record. Those really roomy pants. Those are mine. Um, Yeah, well, yeah, I... But also the the mix of animation and 
real life. This was also, I think, Who Framed Roger, Roger Rabbit? Yeah. 1990, 1989 as well. Yeah, so, I really associated the two as well. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of a fad regarding the, the mixture of the, the two the two film styles at the time. So it, it could have been cashing in on that particular. Yeah, yeah. I reckon it was. It was very obviously, like, looking back, it was very obviously a cash-in kind of song. It's very obvious, like, something, someone had had an idea for this song, they were going to get it out and were totally going to try and make as much money as possible as they could. I'm just trying to look at who wrote it. A guy called... It was written by Oliver Lieber, yeah, who was Oliver actually Lieber. the son of Lieber and Stoller Lieber. Yes. Really? Yeah. Wow, there you go. It's a, it's a pretty funky song for a guy called Oliver. <laughs> With a surname like Lieber. <laughs> but then again, like his father, he knew the funk. Lieber and Stoller, they knew what they were doing. Oh, well, yeah. I definitely loved this song as well. It was just a great pop song, and it was there was just so many pop songs like this at the time that I loved. And, yeah, it was... I mean, I didn't know anything about Paula Abdul. I wasn't interested in learning about the artist in any way. Mm. It was just a fun song, and she could have been... It, it, like, I mean, this could have been uh, one of the more upbeat Mariah Carey songs. It could have been a Gloria Estefan song. It could have been a Janet Jackson song. It could have been any of those sort of guy like, girls, really. It was just... Yeah! It didn't really sound like Paula Abdul... It's nothing particularly Paula Abdul about her. I don't think there's anything particularly Paula Abdul about anything Paula Abdul has done. <laughs> yes, well. Um, but because she was more well-known as a dancer than a singer back in the day. She um, choreographed a lot of the you know, Janet Jackson film clips and things, mm. and that's where she got her start. Of course. Well, I mean, does anyone have anything else to say about Paula Abdul? Did anyone watch her on American Idol recently? I've never watched American Idol. She's been a judge on Idol for years, hasn't she? Or is yeah. Center, yeah. Has anyone listened to her since Rush Rush? Well, that was we briefly touched on this before. But what were the other Paula Abdul singles at the time? Rush Rush. What else? Uh, Promise of a New Day. Well, I don't remember that one. Yeah, I don't know that one. And Forever Your Girl, I think, was a single as well. Okay. See, well, there's, there's, there's the, nothing else that kind yeah. of jumps out. It, from her catalog. it was the thing with American Idol, as though she just popped up out of nowhere again. And mm. With yeah, it's essentially in my mind, she was one hit wonder. Yeah, I've never bought any of her albums and I've contributed zero cents to her career. So, thank you. I bought the cast single for Rush Rush. Wow. With uh, Keanu Reeves in the film. Yeah, that is true. What was on on the B-side to Rush Rush (laughs) on the cast single? Possibly an instrumental version. (laughs) (laughs) I did did that that a lot back in the day. I couldn't even pay a second songwriter to write a bloody (laughs) B-side. I can see that... She's she her last single came out in 1996 until 2008 when she was part of Randy Jackson's Music Club, so that was an idol tie-in. And that last single was "Ain't Never Gonna Give You Up" with "Color Me Bad," which the only oh, place it charted was in the US at 112. 112. Well, I'm surprised "Color Me Bad" existed in any form in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> it's "Color Me Bad" with two days. Mm. They, um, they wanted to sex you up. They did want to sex you up. Did that have two X's? I think just two. No, just one X, but they had two D's. They yeah, did they have two did. D's. They really liked the D. Okay, well, moving on to the fifth number one song of the decade. For five weeks on the 5th of May. That's quite Five a, weeks, big one. 5th of May as well. That's sort of some sort of numerology thing, I'm sure. <laughs> Which I'm sure this artist kind of believes in. It's Madonna with Vogue slash Keep It Together. What are you looking at? 
What's Keep It Together? Well, Keep It Together was the B-side. And so why is it coming up as... It's coming up as listed as, as that was what the single was. It was a double A-side, essentially. So Vogue, if, if, if I could... Uh, I'll, I'll jump in with my, you know, like it, hate it thing. Um, didn't like it, don't like it now, was the first song that we've spoken about that I can remember... Um, not liking that everybody else liked. Wow. And do you know what I mean? Yes. So it was that song that everybody was just into and I didn't get it. I didn't see it. I didn't see where it was coming from and kind of felt like a bit of an outsider for not liking it. But at the same time, proud of the fact that <laughs> I didn't like it. Do you know what I mean? And I still do it to you to this day for not liking the song. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Tim Coyle? Uh, I'm with I'm with Casey on this one. I I didn't like it. I've always had a pretty adverse reaction to Madonna. Madonna was always labelled with a few choice words in my house growing up. <laughs> um, yeah, it, as as Casey said, it was it was everywhere, and girls in class were voguing. Yeah, at, at the time, it, the, yeah. the, the dance moves and the dance steps were were everywhere. I remember that quite distinctly, and also the the film clip is quite interesting. It has that very stylized thing about it, the the power dressing and the very. Geometric shapes. So the Fritz Lang film clip sort of. Metropolis. It was just inspired by Fritz Lang for sure. There's a lot of 1920s uh, Paris and Vienna going on there. So it, it was quite striking uh, as far as the film clip was concerned. But Madonna was something I never really got into, which I guess that's going to be interesting in the coming weeks going Too over the early 90s because Madonna is everywhere. Surprisingly, this was the last number one she had in the 90s. Really? Is that right? Until? Yeah. Until American Pie in 2000. When was Like Whoa. a Bread number one? She wasn't Before that. really a number She wasn't really a number one artist. Mm. She was just one of those people who were always in the charts. She released five or six singles in an album. Yeah, and they all got in the top ten, but none of them got to number one. So what about you, Tim Byron? Did you like this song? I loved it. Really? I, um, I, I thought Madonna was fantastic when I was eight. I, I look, actually, I look back at when I was eight or so, and I had the gayest music taste. <laughs> I really liked Elton John. <laughs> I really liked Madonna. I really liked Queen. I really liked like George Michael. I, I don't know why I'm not gay, really, looking back. <laughs> and let's just let that hang there. <laughs> yeah, totally. And aren't I glad we got that sentence down on the podcast? <laughs> I agree with you, Tim Byron. I love this song. I also love George Michael. I... Actually, it's interesting that one of my favourite songs of all time, which is called Freedom 90, is not on this list, which is the George Michael song. But the I just loved Vogue. I learnt very quickly that rap in the middle of it. You know? You know Dietrich and DiMaggio. Oh, this, this, this is another thing. Guess, guess rapping on very white songs. I oh, it was guess rapping. It was her, wasn't it? Yeah, yes. her. But it's the rap solo you're talking about. Yeah. Black it, and it Wild was... Wild West and Black and White and all those sort of songs. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a big stylistic thing at the time. Was it the first time you guys heard Madonna? 
No, no. I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, what was... I probably had heard Holiday and things like that. Yeah, I remember those songs. Like a Prayer was the first big one I can remember, and that created a bit of a stir around where... That where I was, well, the film clip created a bit of a stir where I was growing. I grew up in a grew up in a Catholic family, so obviously that film clip wasn't necessarily held in the highest regard. And Madonna herself. Well, the song is talking about having a blowjob in a church. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah which a, we all grow up to understand. Which she gets down but, on her knees. Yeah, with a wooden statue of Jesus and a black Jesus, I might add. Yeah, wooden black Jesus. Well, um, uh, d- just one more question. Did you guys learn to Vogue, given you love the song so Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. I don't think I actually, I think I probably did it in the mirror at home, but I don't think I was like, um, I, I don't think I was brave enough to do it outside of my. You just, you just Vogued in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> Let his body move to the music. Well, I mean, it's amazing because she had, you know, probably 10, if not 15 top five hits before that, you know. So Holiday, Borderline, Like a Virgin, Material Girl, Crazy for You. Yeah, Material Into Girl. Groove. Material Girl, I remember. Into the Groove, I remember. Well, I, uh, Material Girl, I remember quite distinctly because, again, the film clip uh, of its gentlemen prefer blondes, Danny, is yeah. that? Yeah, which yeah. was my nana sat me down and made me watch a lot of old-fashioned films when I was growing up. Really? So, yeah. And having watched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, for me, I think preceded actually seeing that film clip. So it was an early case of getting the reference. So do you know that this song comes from a film? Which song? Vogue. Yes. It comes from Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy. (laughs) Oh, goodness. But (laughs) so did... What? uh, Hang on. So what was... (laughs) What was Hanky Panky on? Was that on Dick Tracy as well? Yeah, I think it was. Hanky Panky was from, yeah, I'm Breathless, which is the Hanky well, Panky. Do, do, we rem- do we remember the Dick Tracy film? I do. No. I was, do. I love it, that film. It was quite a flop. I remember this music. I remember... Well, well Hanky Panky was on it, and I think I remember that because it was on the... Dick, only because it was on the Dick Tracy soundtrack and it was a big single. Well, I... Am I right about that? Was yeah. that on that? Yeah. It was the lead track, but I've come, I've <clears throat> have this soundtrack and I listen to it all the time, mainly because the rest of the songs were written by Stephen Sondheim, who I love, uh, sort of New York, you know, classic composer, and Mandy Potemkin, who's now in Homeland, who is a Sondheim singer, was the piano player in the movie, and he sang a couple of songs, and it's so. So, do they have the Dick Tracy album in Yiddish? <laughs> yes, perhaps. <laughs> but it's also if you're if you're a Sondheim fan, it's the only time he was nominated for a Grammy because, you know, it's the only film he's ever done and things like that. So it's kind of important in that world. But, yeah, in Vogue and Hanky Panky, he's, like, we almost don't remember Madonna in that film. Well, Warren Beatty was a very bad Dick Tracy. Yeah, well, Al Pacino was a mess. Yeah. <laughs> it was a mess. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we won't actually have another chance to talk about Madonna in this series of podcasts. Well, I'm, I'm sure she will come up as hovering around the periphery of things. And she's so influential as far as film clips and so many female artists who were, were to come throughout the 1990s that uh, I think it's going to be impossible to, to 
not mention her again. So I guess that wraps it up for 90% Hits, the first podcast. Woo! Thank you uh, for downloading or tuning in or listening to us because you're probably a friend of ours and we ask you to listen. <laughs> so next, please listen. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll be playing around with the format of this and please let us know what you think and hopefully we'll be back next week with another... 1991. No, no, we'll no, be going through no, the, okay. the next five songs in 1990. And any suggestions, you can email to 90%hits at gmail.com. That's percent spelt out in words. I registered it, it today. <laughs> Thanks very much. We've also got 90%hits.tumblr.com. 90, 90 We've got to write something. <laughs> okay, well, fantastic. So we're all over the web. And, yeah, thank you for downloading. It's been seven hours and 15 Last night's bed